Hello, everyone, and welcome to Alien Talk Podcast, where we discuss all things about aliens, UFOs, and that which is out of the ordinary. Conventional thinking is not allowed here. We are your hosts, Joe Landry and Lori Olford. And today, our topics are going to focus on UFOs and possible alien technology that has been observed not only in recent times, but also in the distant past. Hi, Lori. Hey, Joe. You know, we find stories of UFOs all the time. They're everywhere. It's a little of both a scientific phenomenon as well as a pop culture one. But they've always been around. Just look at the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel, where we read what we believe can only be a close encounter of the fourth kind, alien abduction. We'll look into this from the point of view of an ancient alien theory. Yeah, there are descriptions of flying crafts found in folklore and religion all over the world. Uh, The Bible, of course, has them mentioned. Uh, We see them in the Hindu Mahabharata and Ramayana, which are Sanskrit epics, some of which is philosophy and wisdom literature, uh, some of which is comprised of mythological stories of, among other things, flying palaces of the gods called Vimanas. In the Muslim Quran and Hadith, we have the night journey of Muhammad, where he flies from Mecca to Jerusalem on a barak, which is sometimes said to be a winged steed, but also has a, a more literal meaning of lightning, possibly some bright flashing creature, possibly angelic, but it's definitely describing something not found on this world. Uh, from Jerusalem, he is said to have ascended the seven heavens where before reaching the throne of Allah, he meets figures like Adam, Moses, Jesus, and you guessed it, Enoch, the same guy who had a similar kind of journey. Uh, So here we're coming across consistent narratives about fantastic things happening up in the sky. Now, we understand that these vision narratives can have several interpretations within the context of faith. I think almost every pastor, priest, and clergy out there has used hermeneutics on these prophecies to unveil hundreds or even thousands of versions as to what they mean for future events, spiritual awakenings, the first and second comings of messiahs, and messages for personal reflections. Now, there are two methods to interpreting religious texts. One is exegesis, and that's what reads out of it. What does the author convey, and what conclusions can the reader make by following what is written on the pages? And the other is eisegesis. So that is what is read into it. At what point is the author making? Is there a message, maybe subtle or encrypted, that requires the reader to bring an outside understanding to what is written on those pages? And that's one of the things about Scripture. It can give a spiritual purpose in multiple ways to be adapted into one's own life experience, and hence the reason why uh, sacred writings are called the Word of God. Uh, But what Lori and I do on this program is look at these religious writings from the perspective of them being a literal, perhaps misconceived in what the writers knew about the universe at their time. So we utilize both exegesis and eisegesis to help establish a framework of literary reference to understand what is being communicated through these texts. And we are not ruling out the possibility of what is being communicated is indeed the result of the writer's misunderstanding of an extraterrestrial presence and a technology that they possessed. Um, We find a lot of these visions and prophetic writings throughout the Bible, 
There are the books of Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, of course, the book of Revelation. And one that sticks out as particularly interesting is that of Ezekiel. So, Laurie, you just called what happens in the book of Ezekiel a close encounter of the fourth kind. Uh, this makes me think of Steven Spielberg's blockbuster, Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977. Uh, I think Richard Dreyfuss was like 25 years old in that movie. Um, <laughs> I saw it when I was a kid at one of those old drive-in theaters. I, I remember going to those, you know, on hot summer nights with your parents and siblings in the car. Uh, you had no air conditioning. <laughs> at least my family didn't. And yet you had to almost completely roll up the driver's side window in order to hold that clunky speaker in place so you could hear the sound. <laughs> it was not always the best way to watch a movie. Dang, you're just, you're definitely an old man, Joe. <laughs> I, I thought those speakers you're talking about were from like the 50s. <laughs> yeah, the drive-ins that I've seen or been to um, had it so that you would tune your car radio to the FM station, and that's how you would hear the sound. Plus, we had AC. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that came later. Uh, nope, the big cast aluminum speakers were around in the 70s and part of the 80s. But uh, <laughs> those are good times. Uh, they, they, they really were. So anyway, what does it mean when you call an encounter, uh, quote unquote, close of some kind? Well, it comes from J. Allen Inix, the UFO experience, a scientific inquiry. Now, he worked under Project Blue Book, and he classified types of sightings based on their disintegrity. Uh, of evidence. So a close encounter of the first kind is where a UFO is seen close enough, like within 500 feet, so that de detail can be seen. And the second kind is where a UFO causes some sort of physical effect, like radar detection, signal interference, or scorched ground. The third kind is where the life forms that occupy the UFO have made contact with someone. And hence the title of Spielberg's movie. Right. And then there is the close encounter of the fourth kind where someone is actually abducted by the occupants of a UFO. So not only do you make contact with the aliens, but they take you away with them. Yeah. And that's really what you have happening in some of these ancient stories, like in Ezekiel. And the Lord has taken over the movements of his physical body, while at the same time he is describing what is completely strange and completely unnatural. He's talking about creatures with four faces, bright like burning coals, sparkling like crystallite, and who move like flashes. And he emphasizes that they are living creatures. He calls them that every time in the first chapter. So I would say that he means that they are uh, flesh and blood creatures of some sort. Right, so the prophet Ezekiel, uh, was one of the people exiled from Judah after it was conquered by the Babylonians. And his book contains visions he had while he was near the Kibar River, which is located in modern-day Syria. And they warn of God's judgment and of the destruction of the temple. Uh, there are actually six visions in the book, and they're supposed to foretell events that are to occur. Uh, it, it also talks about the need for repentance and that God will eventually restore his people as a nation that serves him. So there are a lot of vivid images that have long been thought apocalyptic symbols of prophecy. So I'll just read chapter one, verses four through nine. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north 
an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by bright, brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was like that of man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. So, here he is relaying his vision, which, quite frankly, sounds uh, a little like a psychosis. <laughs> um, but if what he is saying is actually what is taking place, you have to ask, what is it that he is seeing? Is it God? Is it a messenger from God? If so, then what Ezekiel would think is something supernatural, as anyone in the ancient world would think, may really be just misunderstood machinery and technology. Now, we both know that the clergy go to the eisegesis of the symbolism in, in these visions, that they are hidden messages from God, the multiple faces, the wings, the wheels, the, the flashing light. Uh, these represent providence and God's omniscience and omnipresence, his eternal and everlasting holiness. We know that many parts of the scripture are metaphors and symbols. Is this a literal occurrence happening in space-time or a spiritual experience? I think both. Um, most of Ezekiel is written in the first person. It is as if he wrote it himself or he was dictating his story to someone who then wrote it down. Of course, we can't verify that. Um, the book was written roughly around the same time period as when he lived, though I think someone else wrote it because chapter 1, verse, thir verse 3, uh, talks about him in the third person. Also, Ezekiel was taken against his will and dropped off at another place. Therefore, it would be strange as a spiritual experience. He provides us with a thorough description of, a fl of uh, the flying creatures approaching him from a distance. He's not in a trance. He then describes the cherubim as living creatures. He says he sees a wheel on the ground by each of the living creatures with his four faces. He sees sparkling crystal light. Then in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says that he is abducted. abducted. The spirit lifted me up, and I heard a loud rumbling sound behind me, saying, Praise the glory of the Lord in heaven. I heard the wings of the living creatures touching each other and the sound of the wheels by them. It was a loud rumbling sound. It then says he was taken to the captives of Tel Aviv. So this poor guy, he gets lifted off the ground, abducted, and hauled off to another place and left there to wonder in shock and awe as to what just happened. It says he was unhappy and angry, feeling the great power of the Lord. Well, this doesn't sound like a mere vision, a spiritual experience, which usually described as something more pleasant. This sounds like someone who is being physically overwhelmed and taken away, um, and he's mad about it. An abduction couldn't be characterized any more concisely than this. If it was just a vision, he seems to be feeling it throughout his whole body. Now, we see in chapter 8, he's taken away again but by something looking like a man dressed in fire and metal who grabbed him by his hair and whisked him away to the temple. This, I think, was more of a spiritual occurrence because he has now shown the future 
uh, of Israel if if Israel does not repent. But in chapter 10, uh, there can be little doubt that the details of what he sees is an uncanny comparison to an aircraft. And he even seems to describe a cockpit when, when saying within the dome, there was something that looked like a throne, which that would be a pilot seat. And it looked like a sapphire gem was above it. And inside the dome on the throne was a shape like a human. Well, that would be the pilot. Yeah. And then there's the familiar wheel in the sky, the wheel within a wheel in chapter one, uh, verse 15. Now, as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth. And then in verse 16, the appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of beryl. And their work was as if it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And then in verse 18, as for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful. And their rings, the four of them, were full of eyes about them. There's something almost technical, you know, to this image we're getting from Ezekiel. Uh, he does seem to want to make sure that those who read this passage know that these are, quote-unquote, living creatures and not spirits. And that this thing works by physically moving. Yeah, this is not a vision. It's an actual abduction. The, the prophet is taken against his will. The part describing the uncertain future of Israel may indeed be part of a vision. However, in this part, Ezekiel is talking about a flying machine, which he referred to as cherubim, having four wings, wheels, glass dome, which is a cockpit, and flew fast and was loud. Inside a glass dome was what appeared to be a son of man, a human. So it's also interesting that the scriptures uses son of man and son of God to convey the meaning of form and appearance. A son of man meant a regular human being. If you were to see him, you would say, well, there is someone who is of this world. This, of course, was used in the Gospels to show Jesus Christ was an actual human being walking around with other mere mortal humans. A son of God meant someone or something that was non-human, also used to describe Jesus. To see this, you would say, mm, there's someone who is not of this world. So Ezekiel doesn't seem to think of this figure as a spirit. So he takes, he gets away, and this is similar to what happened to Enoch. Perhaps uh, it was even the same spacecraft. After all, he and Enoch worshipped the same deity, so they could have very well recognized it in the same manner, uh, being a powerful vehicle traveling through the sky. Ezekiel's cherubim are supposed to be that of an angelic race. However, he calls them that because of their ability to obtain flight, which he found difficult to understand. The question is, why would angels have wheels, have four wings, make a loud sound, and have a glass dome over their bodies? Now, Jacob's ladder is another UFO encounter. And so was the uh, covenant of uh, Moses on Mount Sinai. In fact, every instance in the Bible where God descends is most likely an alien contact, as there is often some kind of great spectacle in the sky, uh, leaving everyone at a loss for normal words. Look at Exodus 13:21, with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire guiding the Israelites through the wilderness. God is said to be inside these. Come on now, really? The omnipotent and omnipresent God is traveling in a cloud and having to walk down a ramp 
after touching down on a mountaintop. Mm. And then in Exodus 24, 9 to 11, he exits, he exits the cloud, a craft, by standing at the top of a paved platform to meet with the priests and the 70 elders to do what? Eat dinner with them? In Exodus 33, 7 to 11, and Numbers 12, 5, the pillar of cloud hovers over the camp. And Yahweh actually descends down to meet with Moses face to face in a smaller part of the cloud, decreeing that a tent of meeting is to be built. And then, of course, he strikes Miriam with leprosy. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in both Ezekiel and Exodus, the writers really convey the large sizes and powerful sounds that are being made. And that you really only need to get close uh, in proximity to the running jet engines of something like a B 52 bomber aircraft. Uh, to be in the same kind of awe of something so big and so loud that can fly, or, or witness the launch of a SpaceX rocket at Cape Canaveral. So I, I can't help but think of such things when, when reading these passages. Well, the Ezekiel craft, the chariot, uh, seems to be smaller than what was seen on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, 8-12, a very large ship descends on the mountain and entirely covers it in smoke and fire. This is why a fence was put up, because Moses and God were afraid that people would force their way to see Yahweh. So do you see what I mean about the characteristics of God not matching our teachings about him? So Exodus describes this event with Yahweh descending in a large cloud, because it is a large ship that looks like one of those lenticular clouds, right. which are sometimes seen high above mountaintops. And much like Ezekiel comparing the cherubim chariot to animals, the Israelites did the same by comparing Yahweh to a cloud. Now, this is almost like something out of Star Trek or Independence Day. If these aren't the biggest clues to God being an organic living creature, albeit a mighty one, then I don't know what is. What, what this really is, I believe, is an actual close encounter event with an alien spacecraft. However, religious orthodoxy portrays it as having a completely different meaning, something else other than what it's actually saying. This is a record of alien contacts happening in the very pages of the Bible, my friends. Yeah, let's imagine for a minute that Ezekiel is witnessing a flying craft that was like the one seen in 1997, known as the Phoenix Lights. So what words would he use to describe it? What would he think it is? Where would he think it came from? What mental associations would come to him? And would the idea of anti-gravity come to his mind? Uh, how about electromagnetic energy? Or how about propulsion and the mechanics of motion? No, his conception of the appearance of this kind of object in late Iron Age Mesopotamia would not be the same as ours in the 20th and 21st centuries. We have knowledge of modern physics, astronomy, and engineering. Even most lay people today have a good basic understanding of it. But Ezekiel, in his time, would not have had any such knowledge of it whatsoever. What did he did have knowledge of, like many people in 6th century BC, was that he knew of his beliefs in supernatural powers, spirits, angels, magic, God. The realm of heaven, of things unknown, and as Plato said, are things of which no poet will ever sing worthily. And all Ezekiel knew and could communicate is that this is a mystery, something he had never seen or ever had explained to him. So his, he, we describe it from his own base of knowledge and experience. 
all of the biblical writers would. Uh, he would say the bright orbs are angels, possibly sitting upon an extremely large boat that sails quietly across the sky as if the wind is pushing it. And what we find in chapters 1 and 2 is Ezekiel using his comprehension of the world to depict a machine that is flying and hovering above him. And do we find this to be a case with a lot of stories from antiquity in addition to the Bible? The answer is yes, absolutely. Much of ancient literature, even the non-scriptural or the non-mythological, is loaded with descriptions of bizarre and unexplainable things. Consider the works of Josephus, where a sword-shaped star was in the sky during the first Jewish revolt. Uh, he calls it a comet, but it was positioned in the same place in the sky for a year, uh, which is not characteristic of comets. Um, the Roman statesmen and philosophers, uh, Livy, Seneca, and Pliny the Elder, are said to have written about spectacles from the 2nd century BC to the 1st century AD, where these sparkling bronze shields were seen moving across the sky, um, as well as the, the, the spectacle of seeing shiny men in white being seen all over in what is central Italy. Of course, we also have Constantine the emperor, uh, who before his battle with Maxentius is said to have observed a cross-shaped trophy formed from light and resting over the sun. Strange visions, strange sights. Yeah, for sure. Um, and what Josephus attempted to describe as a comet must have been a UFO. What we must take into consideration here is that it was present for a whole year. Now, comets actually pass us by rather quickly. We do not observe them in the night sky for an entire year. And they do not over, over, over uh, one place and make the night sky so bright that it seems like day. He claims this and that it occurred around 9 p.m. on the eighth day of the Hebrew month, Nisan, roughly from March into April. So I'm thinking that the comet-looking star was a mother ship circling the earth, and perhaps the same one that sent Jesus Christ, perhaps the same one that was seen as being the star of Bethlehem. Uh, a lot of aerial phenomena was occurring um, during the first century AD. Uh, recall from Luke 2, 8 to 15, how the shepherds were visited by heavenly hosts in the night sky while tending to their flocks. And we all know that part of the nativity story. Right, right. Now, to uh, be accurate, uh, the majority of these stories are not given to us in the form of eyewitness accounts. Instead, they are passed on from unknown sources to the writers who are also sometimes not firmly known. But then the issue becomes that these things that happened were either completely made up by whoever saw them, uh, or the people who saw them were all completely hallucinating, uh, or the details were morphed or corrupted in the transcriptions of the accounts. So say something went on, either um, it was all made up, it's uh, all hallucination, or it's an altered story. But in any case, there's plenty of source material to form a documented narrative. And it's not likely uh, that in all of these cases, there isn't something, uh, even if it's minimal, even if it's uh, obscure in regards to what really happened, especially considering the wide range of sightings and encounters from all over the world. But these sightings uh, have gone on really since the beginning of written history. People see them all the time, and to be straightforward, 
we must realize that UFO does not imply an alien spacecraft. Uh, a UFO is just that, an unidentified flying object, a phenomena observed in the sky by which an empirical and scientific explanation cannot be given. It could be extraterrestrial, it could be man-made, it could be natural, we don't know, it's unidentified. But that doesn't rule out the possibility, or even probability, that some of the things seen as unidentified, especially when they're seen in the distant past, the ancient past, uh, or indeed spacecraft from other worlds. So, Laurie, we, we already talked about Nibiru, and the reason uh, as to why we don't see it right now may be because it takes 3,600 years for it to pass by. Therefore, its inhabitants are only able to visit here at, you know, during certain time periods. Why would sightings be taking place so frequently throughout our history when Nibiru is quite often so very far away from us? There are other planets with alien races besides the ones from Nibiru, aren't there? Uh, I would say yes, there are. Um, a lot of the religious texts are, are most likely describing Anunnaki flying craft, that being from Nibiru. I think there are many parallels in mythology of the Norse, the Greeks, and the Egyptians, the Hindus, etc., that are resembling the Sumerian ones. However, not all alien races are to be confused with the Anunnaki. There are the alien greys that are said to have a completely different anatomy than us. Um, so they are not the ones in whose image we are made. There are planets in other solar systems, like that of the star Beta Reticuli, and ones from the Pleiades in the, in the constellation Taurus. Um, there are pale white aliens with blonde hair called the Pleiadians, who are believed to come from this constellation. Uh, there are also the Oct Octurians uh, from the constellation Boots and the Centurions from Proxima Centauri, which is our nearest star, some of whom are said to be more reptilian. Uh, there is a possibility that even the Anunnaki could have reptilian traits, especially like that in their eyes. Another race is the Ajiji, um, who are also from the planet Nibiru and were believed to have been stationed on Mars. It was there that the Anunnaki processed the gold taken from Earth to then be shipped off to Nibiru. And some think that many of our saucer-shaped UFO sightings are so frequent is because they are actually close, having a base on Mars, or even Moon for that matter. So uh, there could very well be other extraterrestrial races out there who are traveling through space and come to Earth, and not just inhabitants of Nibiru. Yeah, and, and we don't know why all these other races would come here and, and, and do so in such a persistent manner uh, with the ones from Nibiru. We have the story of them wanting to get gold and maybe other metals, uh, and we became made by them for this purpose. But with these other species who come and go uh, so much more frequently than once every 3,600 years, we don't have any real consistent source traditions that give us very many clues. Well, some believe that the reptilian race is still here, dwelling under the ice sheet of Antarctica. Others say the greys frequently come and go to abduct us for their experimentation. But if I can go back and add one more comment on why I believe the Ezekiel vision was a real encounter. Um, a former NASA chief named Joseph Bloomrich attempted to disprove Ezekiel's UFO and instead became an advocate for it. So much so that he patented the wheel within a wheel. 
by creating a variant of the omnidirectional wheel, like the ones used in many robotic systems. He then wrote the book, The Spaceship of Ezekiel, and he claims to be convinced that this is a physical encounter and an abduction, mainly due to the vividness of the ordeal Ezekiel went through, but also the because of the clear similarity of the descriptions being like that of what we know of advanced aircraft, like spacecraft and the propulsion systems. Uh, there, there are even weapons mentioned in chapter nine, verses two through four, uh, weapons that seem like high energy laser or plasma blasters, something like a death ray. Yeah, right. The, uh, the six men with slaughter weapons in their hands, clothed in linen with an inkhorn at their sides, possibly the destroying angels talked about in the other parts of the Old Testament. So, you know, we could find tens of thousands of stories from all over the world about sightings uh, that are, by simple definition, unidentified flying objects and extraterrestrial entities. They're everywhere. A lot of them are very graphic. You know, even in the Middle Ages, we have what is known as the celestial phenomena of Nuremberg, which is documented in one of the town periodicals from 1561. Uh, here it was said to have been uh, observed by multitudes of people, and that was supposedly an actual aerial battle occurring over medieval Germany. It was between objects that were uh, rod-shaped and objects that were cross-shaped, and they were lobbing globes at one another, like cannonballs, that were said to cause explosions. Uh, there, there's a famous woodcut um, that was made, um, and it shows the scene uh, of this sort of medieval aerial battle of uh, extraterrestrial craft in the sky. But to be fair, uh, many historians do question the authenticity of this whole account. Uh, of course, we can't forget the creme de la creme of UFO stories, that being the one from Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Uh, I think it's about everyone has heard at least something about this one. Uh, and, and you can't help but wonder if the technological leap we've had since that time doesn't maybe have something to do with perhaps reverse engineering of alien spacecraft systems and, de and designs. The U.S. government at that time became uh, highly motivated to expand our research and development for anything pertaining to the space program. And, and we saw uh, electronics, computers, uh, communication, energy, aircraft, automobiles, all of that was a lot more, just take off like a wildfire. There was more advancement in the past 75 years uh, than in all of human history. And 75 years ago was just about when uh, that Roswell incident happened. So um, my personal UFO story is pretty simple, okay? I don't have one. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I'm being completely honest here. I have never seen a real life UFO. All I've ever seen moving around in the sky or airplanes and satellites, the ISS. Uh, I've seen a lot of meteors, no UFOs. You think I would have by living in Arizona, which is supposed to be one of the hotbeds for sightings. And, and even with my years in the Air Force and with all my deployments, I never came across anything. I heard a lot of guys talk about things they saw. I heard a lot about black projects, but I encountered none of it. So yeah, <laughs> pretty boring. <laughs> well, I, I can't say that I've witnessed very many of them myself. Um, I did see things in the sky that made me question. Um, but one of my 
family members experienced something that he kept secret for over 40 years. Back in 2013, he decided to tell me about it. And what he said is that one evening, he and a friend were in the kitchen of his house. And this was sometime in the late 70s. And he said they heard a weird humming or buzzing sound coming from outside. So they went outside onto the patio and looked up. And he said about 50 feet above them was a saucer-shaped object, a UFO, and that he could actually see through the windows that were on the side of it. Now, did this happen in Canada? Yeah, this happened in Newfoundland, Canada. Uh, So he said the two of them watched it fly towards the beach and then out toward a nearby island. But he said the strangest thing about all of this was that he could only remember walking back to the house from the beach and not ever walking down to the beach from the house to follow after it. He suffered some kind of memory loss. So later, um, I did some checking, and I found out found a story carried by the Saltwire Network. It was about a large UFO uh, the size of a Boeing 747 that was hovering over the harbor between Clarenville and Random Island, Newfoundland. Wow. It's about a 30-minute drive from my hometown, actually. And supposedly, uh, quite a few people reported seeing it, even a Royal Canadian Mountie named Jim Blackwell, who has done numerous, numerous uh, interviews throughout Canada and the world um, about the incident. So he actually claimed he was able to communicate with it using his patrol car lights. Um, It was such a big deal that the town went ahead and named their hockey team the Clarenville UFOs. How about that? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So I started thinking that well, maybe this was the mothership and what my family member saw was a scout ship. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating anecdote. I know Canada certainly has a good number of site beam reports uh, throughout the years. Now, how about the asteroid Umamau, which was seen in 2017 at the Haleakala Observatory in Hawaii? It's uh, cylindrical in shape and about a kilometer long. But what's weird about it is that it appears to be tumbling through space instead of spinning through space, and making some scientists at NASA think it broke off from something larger and much further away than where most of the asteroids and comets you know, travel and come from, that being the Oort cloud further out in the solar system. They think it could even be interstellar, meaning coming from beyond our solar system. Yeah, and NASA did eventually deem that it was some kind of an asteroid. However, Avi Lee Loeb, uh, an Israeli-American physicist at Harvard University, told the Boston Globe that he believed it seemed to be manufactured in its design. In its design, uh, he claimed that it was not an asteroid because it was moving too fast along a strange orbit. Um, it cannot be an asteroid, and because and because there is no trail of gas or dust, it cannot be a comet. So his hypothesis is that it is a piece of equipment that drifted away from an alien civilization from another star system. And you know, even former President Obama, according to The Hill, just last week, on May 18th, was quoted as saying, what is true? Uh, I'm not actually being serious here. Is there's footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. Yeah, I heard that. Uh, he went on the James Corden show uh, at NBC and said that. Was it NBC or CBS? Uh, it was CBS. Oh, yeah, the James Corden show was on CBS. Yeah. Uh, mixed up. 
Uh, right. He also claimed that he could not say everything about what he knew either. So I strongly believe we were and still are encountering UFOs and will continue to be. Eventually, the government will divulge everything. Uh, they already are releasing video footage from F-18 flight cameras showing the pilots chasing a Tic Tac in 2004 off the California coast. Yeah, you even hear the pilots saying they have no idea what the object is and that it can't be of this world or actually saying all that and they called it a tic-tac because its shape and color on the video monitor resembles that of a tic-tac breath mint you think they would have come up with a better name for it than a, a tic-tac object but uh nonetheless this footage has been shown quite a bit on the news and documentaries um and talk shows i think most of us have seen it uh in some fashion and I think we can all agree that it doesn't look like anything we've ever witnessed before. And according to U.S. military officials, uh, they don't know what it is either. <laughs> well, at least that's what they're stating publicly. Um, but what's most peculiar to me is that even today, with our advances in technology and our scientific understanding of everything, we still have trouble saying for certain what any of these things really are they're still unidentified. So if humanity in this modern era is grappling with trying to understand this, think how much more so people would back in the ancient world if they witnessed them. So I believe that if today we have reports of things that are not understood or described in inaccurate ways, then surely the writers of the past had the same problem, but even more so. And that's why we see all the religious texts read the way uh, they do, indecipherable and enigmatic. Yeah, that, that's well put. And, and with, <laughs> unfortunately with that, we're now out of time. So uh, we have a lot of subjects to cover in the upcoming episodes. And uh, Lori and I are planning at some point in the near future to invite guests to come onto the show who can give some unique and special insight into our discussions. And yeah, we would like to uh, do that soon. And we also have a, uh, a, a cornucopia, a just overflowing of interest topics, interesting topics. Um, next week, Joe and I are going to explore some of the mysteries of Antarctica and what's under those massive ice sheets. And could some of the stories of Atlantis or even the Garden of Eden be tied to it? And is there an extraterrestrial presence there? like the reptilians, as some believe. Yeah, it may even have had something to do with the accounts of that cataclysm called the Great Flood. Yeah, there's certainly no place like Antarctica, that's for sure. So we hope you will all tune in to that, and uh, we thank you all for joining us today. And until next time, uh, stay safe, stay peaceful, and most of all, stay curious. Take care, folks. So long, everybody. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>